Thanks for listening to the Theology for the Rest of Us podcast by J.R. Foresteros. This is a class I taught at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene, so from time to time you'll hear questions being asked by the class. I do my best to repeat them so that you won't be lost as you listen. You can find more of my podcasts at my website, jrforesteros.com, and at storyman.us, where I co-host with Matt Michelados and Clay Morgan. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the class. This is a week where the stuff that we're going to be talking about, you're, you're starting to see if you've been here most of the time, how everything we've been talking about keeps building and building and building on itself uh, to, prov- to provide meaning and, and substance to everything. So particularly when we're talking about Jesus tonight, then we're going to be talking about Jesus and why essentially the New Testament or why the story of God's rescue of humanity doesn't just start in Matthew chapter one, why we have a fairly substantial amount of literature that we call the Old Testament that precedes it. You know, um, I, I grew up not ever really uh, learning about the Old Testament. You know, I had like the, the flannel graph Bible stories and stuff like that. So like I knew Jonah and the whale, I knew Noah's Ark. I knew, I knew this, like the stories, but I, there was a huge disconnect between like those stories in the earlier part of the Old Testament and then anything having to do with Jesus. It was almost like they were just two completely unrelated you know, religious texts. And so um, for me, it was probably safe to say profound as I moved through my education to see that the Old Testament actually really does matter and that it actually has a lot of bearing on who this Jesus guy is and on understanding the things that he claimed and the things that he said about himself and then particularly what he did for us and why it matters. So uh, that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. We have a lot to get through, so as usual, I'm going to try to move as quickly as possible, but uh, if at any point I blow past something that you think needs some more attention, please, please, please speak up, because again, if I lose you, then we've actually just wasted our time together tonight, and I don't want to waste your time. I, I waste time all the time. It's not a big deal, but I don't want to waste your time, because your time is valuable, and you chose to use it here. So uh, if, if I miss something or if we go through something too quickly or if there's something you don't understand, please, please, please slow down, ask a question. We'll go back to it. Um, so here we go. Ready to talk about Jesus? Yeah. Excellent. All right. So before we do that, I guess we probably better review. Uh, the very first week we talked about theology being words about God and the idea that almost everyone in our culture talks about God. Uh, so it's not a question of whether or not we're going to do theology. It's a question of how well we're going to do theology. And... We, as Nazarenes, are part of a tradition that has four sources for theology. Uh, the first is the scriptures, which we've obviously spent tons of time in. Uh, they, they frame our discussions. They inform our discussions. The second is reason, our own ability to make sense of the world and to you know, process logically why one idea flows from the next or why it doesn't. Right? It has to make sense to us. Uh, our own experiences of God, of Jesus, of the church— uh, inform our theology, and then also uh, tradition, not just our own 100-year-old, give or take a couple of years, Nazarene theological tradition and church tradition, but the whole larger tradition of the people of God, going back the 2,000 years of Christian history that we've been trying to figure out who Jesus is and what he means to us, and then also, of course, even going back before that into the people of Israel, which is, you know, we've been, five of our, five, five of our nine weeks we spent basically in the Old Testament. So that should tell you something about how important the story of Israel also is to us. There was actually an early Christian named Marcion. He was in like, it's about 100 years or so after Jesus's life. And his recommendation was that we don't need that silly Old Testament 
And so he suggested to the larger church that they just get rid of it altogether. Uh, and then he actually went through the Gospels and edited out things that were too Jewish in his estimation, things that were like too Old Testament-y, and uh, even went through a lot of Paul's letters which and, and edited those down. And the church decisively rejected his suggestion that we don't need the story of Israel and Israel's people. Obviously, Marcion was not a Jewish fellow himself. He was a Gentile, like probably most of us in here. But when he suggested that, the church said, no, 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 the, the Jewishness of the story of God is important. It matters, and we've been talking about this the whole time, right? It matters that God met people where they were and interacted with them where they were in order to call them forward. And if you ignore the story of Israel and how God came to Israel in these particular times, in these particular places, to these particular people, in these particular cultures, then you're actually missing who God is and how God works among us all together. So the church uh, rejected Marcion and declared Marcionism a, a, a heresy and said, no, 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 if you're going to be Christian, that means you're going to be uh, understanding everything through the lens of Judaism as well. So we began uh, after that with the Trinity. That's what that's supposed to be, is that little Trinity symbol. Um, and, and what we saw is that, again, God is most basically, most fundamentally a being who exists in order to give himself away. And so the reason that the Trinity is important to our theology, a reason, is because if God is three persons who are also one person, then God is free to give and receive totally inside of himself and doesn't need, doesn't require anyone outside of himself. He's self-sufficient, right? Uh, if, God, if God was one, then he would need creation to be fully himself. And that would mean that uh, that would be all kinds of unhealth, unhealthy relationships between God and creation. So it's actually very important to our theology that God is Trinity and that God is love. And when we say love, we mean self-giving. Uh, so the, after we talked about Trinity, we talked about what it means to talk about creation and how in the ancient world they understood everything through the lens of their own uh, social organization. And that was that everything kind of flowed from the bottom up. It was like a grassroots kind of society. And the, the center of the ancient Israelite culture was the home. And so the father was the patriarch. And the oldest living male was the father of the house. And the house wasn't just you know, a mom and dad and 2.5 kids in a white picket fence. It was everyone who was descended from that oldest living male was a part of just that same house. And so then that father was the, the ruler over all of that. So when they, when they later formed into tribes, there were, you know, all of the fathers came together and they ruled the tribe. They were like the tribal elders. And then when the tribes got together and decided they wanted a king, that king was in this model of the house. So they talk about the house of David being the, the metaphor for the whole nation of Israel, right? And then so they also, and so, so you have the idea of like the house and the father, the, the king and the nation. And then when it comes to God, they actually talked about God living in the temple of creation and that the whole world, they sort of metaphorically imagined to be this cosmic temple where God lived and was worshiped by God's images because in every temple in the ancient world, you had an image of the God. But in our particular case, in our story, the image of God that dwells in the temple with God is us as humanity. We are God's image. And so th the way they thought about and understood the world was that the whole world is a cosmic temple that God dwells in with them. Or that God is the king of their nation. Or that God is the father of their house. Right? These, all, these, these ideas were all the same thing to them. They, they understood the world to work the same way. So, um, there are a couple of terms that I want to introduce to you right here that are going to be important for us later, but we need to talk about them right here. As we move through the scriptures, it's important for us to remember 
that everything for the Israelites, for the Jewish people, was understood in terms of this like father house, God temple kind of relationship. Okay, that's, and, and we still call God Father today, right? That's the terminology that we use. Uh, that was terminology that they used. And so um, the, the idea, we talked about covenants last week, right? Covenants are sort of these formalized relationships. They're sort of a, a way to publicly identify what kind of a relationship is. Covenants were what maintained us and God, and God is our father and us as God's children or God's subjects or God's images, right? And the term that, that, that Israel would use to describe a, a healthy covenant or relationships that are in order was righteous, okay? It, it literally just meant everything's okay, everything's good, right? The relationship's healthy, there's nothing in the way of it, everything's stable, the house is good, everything's in order, right? That meant it was righteous, or people who were living the way they should in a right relationship with God. They were called righteous people, right? And all that, what that meant was that things between them and God are, are stable, are good, are free of interruption. There's, no, there's nothing in the way of that relationship. Does that make sense? Okay, now, anytime there was a broken covenant, anytime something got in the way of that relationship, anytime the covenant suffered and you had to go through the process of making it right again, that was a process called uh, justification or being justified. And again, we still basically use that word today, right? Someone accuses you of something that you didn't do. What do you do? You justify yourself. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Here's why, you're, here's why I'm not in the wrong, right? That's what it means to, to justify. And so metaphorically, that's what this, this meant, is when any time a relationship got broken, and you can imagine any number of reasons relationships got broken, just like they get broken today, right? The process of making that relationship right again was a justification process. And usually that would involve some kind of forgiveness, right, on the part of the, the, you know, the person who was wronged would have to forgive, and that would be an act of justification. Now, today, most of that language, and if you hear Christians talk about that kind of language, particularly in theological circles, it ends up sounding like it's uh, coming out of a courtroom, right? The covenant is a le- they you don't talk about it as covenant is a legal contract, and righteousness is like right standing before God, or they talk about like rightness with regard to the law, and justification is like a legal action. That's because probably one of the most important figures in Protestant theology is John Calvin. You've probably heard of him, part one of the guys that was involved in the Protestant Reformation. Does anyone know what his profession was? A lawyer. He was a lawyer. So when he wrote and thought about when he studied, I mean, he's a lawyer, right? He spent his whole life studying law. So when he came to the scriptures, he used a law lens, right? I mean, that was just how, that's how he saw the world. And so he, he interpreted all of this language legally. Now, what sort of aided him in that was that because this model was how everything worked, this is also how their legal model worked, right? And so if we're, you know, if we're all a little village together, we'd be maybe like, say, two or three houses, Right? We'd have two or three patriarchs here. I won't add, we won't figure out who the oldest men are, but if that's one of you, you'd be in charge. Right? We'd be your families. And if, like, if I did something wrong to Angie, uh-huh. right, then we would go to our, perspe- our respective fathers of our houses, and then we would take it before the, the council, which would be like the three, you know, the three fathers, and then we would like, plead our cases and all of that, and the fathers would be the judges. They would judge the case. And there would be talk of broken covenant and what justification needs to happen and how, how the community can be righteous again. So you would use all of this language and, and all of it would be legalese, except that it's all founded not, I mean, when we think of courtrooms today, right? I'm sure none of us have ever been to court, 
but imagine that you had, you've seen Law and Order or something. You know, we imagine like a, you know, a white wig and a black robe judge that we've never met before, very impartial, and there's this like objective, you know, justice is blind kind of, the, you know, theory behind it, and the judge doesn't know me, doesn't know you, and they, we just argue our cases, and they, may, they, you know, they pull this law down out of the sky and out of their legal books, and they render a, a verdict, right? And it's all very impersonal, and it's designed to be that way, right? Well, you can imagine if it's three dads sitting around talking about their, their kids and their grandkids and their whatever, like it was never impersonal. It was all, always, always, always based on what's best for the community. And so there was like this, there was this familial relational um, grounding that even the legal system was based on. Um, you're talking probably pretty late in Israel's history before you'd get anything resembling a judge who didn't know the people involved, right? And so um, even the legal language that we find in the scriptures is really ultimately based on relationship. It's really ultimately based on this self-giving God who's want, desiring relationship with people, who, who's, who set up the world originally to be a very good place where he could live with his images, right, in creation. And so even all of the, when you read Paul and he's talking about justification and righteousness and all this stuff, and then you read some of the, some of the scholars on Paul, they're coming at it from that, like, really dry, like, you know, 16th century enlightenment legal framework. And you sound like, it sounds like you're reading legal code. But for Paul, it wasn't, it wasn't legal code as much as it was family law. You know, I mean, what, what's really at stake for you is not upholding some sort of, like, esoteric moral standard of the universe. It was about restoring the function of the house, right? So, I mean, I guess, again, the difference would be if your, your kids are fighting, at least in my experience, parents aren't, aren't like, stop, stop fighting. Don't you know that by hitting your brother, you have offended the moral fabric of the universe and there must be some sort of recompense so that the universe can be like, no, that's not how we talk, right? Like what you're concerned about is that they understand how their actions affect each other and that the whole house can begin to function well and healthily again, right? And so that, when we're talking about all of this language that we're going to be talking about tonight, what you always have to keep in the back of your mind is that this is a house and this is a father, and that what's really at stake here is that what's, what's, when we talk about the world being broken, we're talking about God's house being broken. And we're talking about humanity being broken. We're talking about God's family being broken. And what God is setting out to do is not as a judge to condemn and to punish, but as a father who's seeking to rescue and to save and to restore. Okay, that, that's the framework that we're working from. And it's built, I mean, it's built on everything we've been doing so far. But I felt like it was worth going over again because we... We watch Law and Order more than we probably read Genesis. Maybe I'm yeah. guessing. So, um, okay. So, we good? Good so far? All right. So we got to. We're not even out of Genesis yet. We got to sin, and what we saw with sin is that we humans choose not to live in God's world on God's terms. Right? We choose to do things our own way, and what that culminated in in Genesis six was God's removal of His hand from creation. And what we saw in the flood was not just it, this. We talked about this last week, right? It wasn't just that it rained a lot and then the water rose. It was that the very created fabric of reality that God had put into place, God took away. And the, the idea here, and we're going to see this over and over again tonight, is that the, the primary way, at least, that God punishes sin is by giving us what we want. You know, between Genesis 3 and Genesis 6, we spent hundreds of years telling God, no thanks, we got it. 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 And finally, God goes, 
okay, have at it. And what we found out was we don't, we don't got it, right? We can't actually create and maintain the world in our image. That's something only God can do, and we like to try to do that, but we can't. And so what, we'll see, what you'll see over and over and over is that, that really, and this Romans talks about this, we'll probably get to this a little bit more next week and the week after, but in Romans 1, Paul says, God's wrath is revealed when he gives us over to our sinful desires. He says, go ahead, see what happens. You have it, ha- basically, have it your way. This is what you wanted, and I'm sort of holding you back, like I'm sort of protecting you, and you keep saying, no, 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 let me, let me, let me, let me, and God finally goes, okay. So, Right. Yes. Yeah. Again, there's a reason that the father metaphor works really well with this. Um, So then we got into the rest of the covenants. After the flood, God says to Noah and his descendants, he says, I see that every inclination of the human heart is evil. I see that they're bent away from me. I see that humanity is broken. But I will never again allow their sinfulness to destroy the world. And then we had the rainbow, and that, that, was that, that was that first covenant after the fall, the first covenant of sin, that, that essentially God is, God is going to save us from ourselves. God will not allow humankind to destroy ourselves or destroy the world. So then we fast forwarded to Abraham. We saw that God will use Abraham and his house, right, his descendants, his sons and daughters, going back to this language. He will use his house to rescue the world, to bless all of the peoples of the world. It will happen through Abraham and his descendants. So then we got to Moses. You just want to focus on the black part of this here real quick. Moses, we saw this thing with Sinai and all of that, that what, um, what we got were Torah and tabernacle. Torah is God's creative wisdom. It's, it's, the, it's the, the logic and the fabric of reality in written form. It's how humans are meant to live in the way of God. It's what, how we were created to live. Uh, the tabernacle is a microcosm of creation. Right? It's a miniature representation of creation. So when we go to the tabernacle, we don't go to the tabernacle. But if we were ancient Israelites and we went to the tabernacle, when we were going to the tabernacle, we were actually sort of play acting what it was like to live in the garden, right? where we are God's image living in God's world. And so there was this way of, uh, of reminding ourselves and continuing to participate in God's way and in God's reality. It was like a weekly reminder of who God is and who we are, which is still what our worship is meant to be today, but we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. I got the tabernacle, but the Torah, is that only what Moses, the word that Moses brought down? Right. Okay. Well, yeah, and so the question is, was the Torah just what Moses brought down? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 the, more, it's the more general term for the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, Moses brings down sort of the core of the Torah, and then some other stuff is added at some different points, but yeah, I mean... You won't go wrong thinking of it that way. When we're, thinking, when we're talking about Torah, and you'll even hear in the New Testament, it's nearly always called the Law of Moses, right, or the Torah of Moses. Because it's, I mean, Moses brought it. It's Moses' thing, right? It's, the covenant is, with, there's a reason, you know, reason he gets a lot of play in the Bible, uh, and it's because of this. So, so what Hebrew worship was about through the tabernacle and later through the temple, which was the exact same thing, just permanent instead of portable, um, it, it's about becoming God's image in God's world. It's about getting back to that vision that we started with in Eden. Okay? And then the last covenant we looked at was David, uh, where, where uh, the king represents God to his people. Right? He's the head of the national house. And the covenant with David was that David would always have a descendant on the throne. Okay. Good? All right. So between David and Jesus, uh, there was conquest. Um, 586 B.C., this is about... 
oh, I don't know, 500-ish years, 400-ish years after David. So there's lots and lots of kings of Israel, and some of them are good and some of them are bad, right? But eventually it gets to the point where an, an empire called Babylon comes in and conquers Judah, conquers the southern kingdom, destroys the city of Jerusalem, destroys the temple of God. And then a few years after that, the, uh, Babylon is conquered by Persia. Uh, and then there's an emperor named Cyrus who actually lets the Israelites go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. But it's like not as good as it used to be. You know, it never is. Um, the final ruler of Persia was a guy named Alexander the Great. Okay, and he ruled until he was about 20 and then he died. And you probably have heard the story, maybe take back to Western Civ. And uh, after that, after Alexander the Great died, he didn't have an heir. And so his, his huge empire was carved up by his three generals. And so a general named Ptolemy took Egypt, and then that included the Holy Land. Okay, so Israel passed from Babylon to Persia to Alexander the Great to the Ptolemaic Empire. And in one, I think it was 165 BC, I should have looked it up. Um, one of the Ptolemaic kings, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, you don't even know that, but he went into the temple that they had rebuilt, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar. Now, the pig is an unclean animal in Judaism, so this desecrated the temple. It rendered the temple unusable for worship. And so that sparked a revolt by some guys named the Maccabees, the brothers, the Maccabee brothers. This is the, this is the war that's celebrated today in the festival of Hanukkah. Okay, and this is the first time since 586 BC, this in one, again, 156, like 400 years-ish later, that Israel was finally free again. Okay, and that lasted for about 120 years, and they were free under the Maccabees, and then Rome came in and 44 and conquered them. Okay, so by the time we get to Jesus, there is a old, old, old king named Herod the Great, who is on the throne, he's probably about two-thirds crazy and probably about one-third real smart, um, or maybe actually the opposite. He, was, he wasn't paranoid because everyone did hate him and wanted to kill him. So, But uh, um, at the time of Jesus, the people of Israel are living in exile in their own kingdom, in their own land. Now, the reason exile was so bad is because it was considered God's wrath against an Israel that refused to keep its covenants. The language you'll see all through the prophets using is the language of marriage. They say you're cheating on God. But this is language that goes back to the house metaphor, right? If God's the father and Israel is his bride, basically what they're doing is they're going to other houses and shacking up with other gods. Okay, and so the language that keeps getting used is language of adultery or sexual immorality, but it's actually, what it actually is in in practice, in reality, is it's actually political theory. What they're actually doing is instead of trusting God to keep them safe as a nation, they're making alliances with foreign kings and foreign gods. And again, in their world, every nation had its God. And so if I, as the king of Israel, am making an alliance with you know, my Edomite guys over there, what I'm really saying is that I think that their gods can keep me safe. 
And so if you read through 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings and all of that, what you see is a constant, Israel's constantly fearful for their future and they're constantly making alliances with all these foreign nations, marrying, you know, they're sealing these alliances through marriages to foreign uh, queens and stuff like that. And then they're bringing the foreign gods into Israel and doing idol worship and idolatry and stuff. And, and, and all of that is about saying they don't trust God to maintain the covenant, right? They don't trust, they don't trust that God said I'll, David will always have an heir on the throne. They don't trust that God said, I, I'm enough to protect you. And so they keep going to all of these other. Yeah, Angie. What is wrong with them? Didn't, they, didn't God himself like kind of appear to them in the cloud? Yeah. Didn't, didn't his voice scare the crap out of them? And well, by this point, Sinai is a thousand years ago. And so it was like. Well, I mean, were you there? Did you see it happen? Well, okay, I mean, you didn't have a crazy old grandpa that made up war stories or something? I mean, (laughs) honestly, there's a really interesting story. Angie's question is a good one. Yeah, you know, there's an interesting story in the book of Judges, which is, you know, mm, five to ten generations after the Exodus, right? And a man named Gideon is out working in his field, and an angel comes to Gideon and says, hey, God's going to use you to free your people, okay? And Gideon's response is, You've got to be kidding me. Like, we all have those old stories about how that stuff happened, but it doesn't happen today. And I remember the first time I really read that, and I was like, oh, that, like, that's how I feel sometimes. Like, I read through the Bible, and I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, that must have been nice to live back then when all that cool stuff was happening, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't happen today. And, you know, when you've got, when you've got foreign armies at your door, when your trade routes are being clogged up and stuff, I mean, you know, we're talking about national security stuff. So, I mean, you, you could ask how different we are today. I feel it. I feel what you're saying. I just, it's just, I guess, you know, it's all kind of in God's plan. I don't, well, I don't well know. it's not. I mean, the thing is, it's not in God's plan. Well, God's plan was the maintaining of the covenant. I just, it's just, it's just a shame. It is. A, yeah, that's it's the best word shame. for it. It is an absolute shame. Okay, I'm ready. And believe me, no one, <laughs> no one felt that shame as deeply as those Israelites who went into exile. Because they perceived it as a failure of their covenant. They said, God's not the one that dropped the ball. We're the ones that dropped the ball. And Ezekiel's a prophet who lived through this whole thing. So if, you want, if, you, if this is something that really grips you, spend some time in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 10, there's this gut-wrenching uh, vision of God leaving the temple. And so the, the heavenly chariot descends, and God gets in it, and the, that physical sh- the presence of God that dwelled in the Holy of Holies, it actually gets into the temple, and it leaves. And for Ezekiel, that was his way of saying, what God is telling the nation of Israel is, done with you, done with you, fine. You want to go sleeping around with all these other nations' gods? Go ahead, see, how, see what it gets you. I'm done, I'm gone. You wanted this? I'm leaving. And so he departs like the... the the presence of God departs from the temple and departs from Israel. And then they're, de- they're destroyed. They're decimated. Because God gives them what they wanted. I mean, it's just like, they think even things like the Holocaust and such. Okay. Does it? Sure. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm but, not as, done. but as Christians, aren't we given the gift of grace and the gift of faith? And that's why we can sustain our belief in that. I mean... Oh, they did have it. I mean, listen, 
you've got a, you've got a good four or five hundred years of Israel constantly turning to these other gods before fi God finally leaves. I mean, that's grace. If that's not grace, I don't. We don't get four hundred years as individuals, right? That's a lot of patience. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, it is. It is, and this this is this is what the prophets kept trying to drive home is they were saying God is not. Like, and it's, it's not even at this point that God is fed up with you, but like that you're just, you're not listening. So maybe this will, maybe this will work, right? Maybe if I give you what you want, you know, cause I'm out of options at this point. We've tried, we've tried the miracles. We've tried the prophets. We've tried everything else. You know, there's a story in the new Testament where, or the rich man and Lazarus, where it's a, it's a parable Jesus tells where the rich man dies and goes to, to Hades, hell, underworld, whatever. And he, he's calling up to heaven and he's like, send Lazarus back from the dead to, to warn my sons. And Abraham says, they have, they have the law and the prophets. They have Moses, they have the Torah, right? They, they have. If they're not going to listen to what God said, why are they going to listen to what a dead guy said? Right? And it's, it's a good question. And so it's, it's hard to, as, as you're, sort of feeling, it's hard to overstate how big, uh, how, how much the exile shaped the imagination, the, the, the worldview of the Israel, Israelite people. And so even, even though they get to go back into the land and they get to rebuild the temple and all this stuff, they're still a conquered people. There's never a moment, even, even really went to Maccabees, like, there's never a moment when they're like, yeah, we got this. This is, this is it. We're back on top. Like We're who we wanted to be. So there's this sense that they're living with this broken covenant that they broke, right? And God has given them over to it. And they keep asking, is this ever going to change? Is God ever going to come back? And actually, Ezekiel has some marvelous visions later in his book of what that's going to look like. But they dream about a new temple. They dream about a new covenant. They dream about a new nation. And this is where our hopes for a Messiah come from. They dream about that son of David that God promised would be on the throne who's going to come back and put Israel back on top, right? So they want a new David. They want a new Moses. They want a new, a new Israel, right? And they get that in the person of Jesus. So Matthew's gospel opens up with uh, a genealogy which is super exciting literature, right? That's why all of our fiction and our nonfiction today starts with genealogies, because we love reading. <laughs> no, um, for a Jewish person, this was really important. By starting his gospel with Abraham, and then what's fat, see, this is, the, this is the really Bible nerdy stuff that we don't see, but if you, if you sit there and count the names in the genealogy, which is something I know we're all, like, that's the first thing we do. Um, there are actually 14 names, 14 people between Abraham and David, and then there are 14 people between David and Jesus. Okay, and so the point of that is that Matthew is wanting to say, and like we know historically, that's like there was way more time between Abraham and like that. The we know that it like he skipped some generations in there. Like what was more important was the numbers than the every single descendant that Jesus had. Uh, and so what he's saying there is that yeah, this person that I'm about to tell you this story about is really really important. They're a true son of David. They're a true son of Abraham. So pay attention to what I'm about to do. And then we get into the Christmas story, which in Matthew, I don't know if you've ever paid attention to the fact that there are two different Christmas stories in the Gospels, but Matthew only has King Herod and the wise men, right? And then Luke has the shepherds and Mary and Joseph, and uh, none of them have a donkey, but um, we just assume that, you know, they wrote something. So uh, what's fascinating in the way Matthew tells Jesus' story is that it opens with the powers assaulting Jesus, Okay, by we have Herod, who's that old 
false king, right? He's not a son of David. He's not rightfully on the throne, and he's propped up by the evil empire, by Rome, right? He is the one who, when he finds out that Jesus has been born, he decides he's going to take decisive action, and he sets out to destroy, to murder, to kill this new thing that God is doing. Of course, he's unsuccessful, but right from the beginning of the story, that's how Matthew frames it. He says what's happening here is cosmic in scope. The, the powers that run the world right now, Rome, like that evil empire that's not just people, it's that, you know, everything we talked about that week when we talked about sin, right? Like all of that. They are paying attention to a little baby born in a little backwater town, born in a little backwater country. Like it's so important that the most powerful military in the world is trying to figure out how to shut this down. Okay, that's, that's, that's how this is framed. Uh, and then what's fascinating is that Jesus' message in Matthew is to repent. I put it at the bottom of that first section there. It says, From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent of your sin and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Uh, now, now, repent, see, repent's one of those words that used to mean something, and then it doesn't, now it's just a church word today that just means, like, quit what you were doing and follow Jesus. But in the ancient world, it was actually a political term. To repent actually means to abandon one set of political affiliations and switch sides. Switch affiliations, uh, which, you know, the root word kind of means to turn around. It means like you're going one way and then you turn and go the other way. But in Jesus's world, it actually had political overtones. Um, so it was like switching allegiances. And so it, it's interesting that when Jesus says repent, why? Because the kingdom, right? That's political language too. There's a new king in town and he's the one that deserves your allegiance. So follow him. That's what Jesus is saying. And again, that makes sense. We were expecting that because he's the, he's the son of David. He's this promised king that we've been waiting for. So we're not particularly surprised that he's using such politically charged language. We, we have a suspicion it's going to get him in trouble, but we're not surprised that he's using that language. If we're an ancient Israeli reader, most of us today that have no idea about any of that are like, oh, that's super interesting. But for them, for, for the ancient readers, that would have been, they would have picked up on that right from the get-go. So because Jesus is the true heir of David, he's the Messiah. He's that chosen one of God who's going to return Israel from exile. He's the one who's going to rescue Israel by defeating all of those rival powers, which, again, are more than just earthly. And we see that pretty quickly because in his temptation, he's battling Satan. And then right after he comes out of the wilderness, he's casting out demons. So right away, all of the forces of evil are gathering against them, and he's shutting them down one after another. It's exciting stuff. The other thing that's really cool about Matthew's gospel is that uh, he parallels the story of Moses. And so Moses, when he was in Egypt, escaped the mass murder of infants by a king who was scared of what they represented. So too, Jesus escapes the mass murder of infants because a king was scared of what he represented. Um, Jesus flees to Egypt, which is ironic because Moses fled from Egypt. It's, it's, a, it's an indictment of Herod that he is, such a, he is such a bad king of Israel that even Egypt is safer for Israel's people than Israel is. Right? Egypt's sort of like the big bad everything in the story of Israel. And so the, the idea that, is, that Egypt would be safer than Israel is just crazy. But that's how bad of a king Herod is uh, and is sort of justifying you know, Jesus. Uh, the, the, the baptism and the way the baptism is talked about really frames... Uh, it, it works really well as a parallel to the Red Sea, to the parting of the Red Sea and the crossing. And then Jesus is in the desert for 40 days, the same way that the Israelites were in the desert for wandering for 40 years. 
Uh, and then even his battle with Satan has some really strong echoes of the ten plagues because, again, the plagues were direct attacks on, on Egypt's gods. And so this idea that the powers are, are battling each other there is played out in Jesus' battle in the wilderness. And then, after his baptism, after his temptation, the first thing he does in Matthew chapter 5 is he goes up on top of a mountain and he gives away a law. He says, and this is where I put this on in there, it says, he says, now don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses, the Torah of Moses, or the writings of the prophets. I came to accomplish their purposes. And then he starts quoting the Ten Commandments and then offering a new interpretation of them. You have heard that it was said, you must not murder. I tell you, if you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if, even if you're angry with something, you know, he goes on to, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you this, you've heard it said, and, he, and so he's actually... He's giving, he's reenacting the story of Moses. He's giving like a new, and then, if that's still a little bit too subtle for everyone that's paying attention, he gets, goes down and he calls 12 disciples. And there were 12 tribes of Israel. Oh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not subtle, right? Everyone would have understood what he was doing. Everyone would have understood that he was saying, I am rebuilding Israel. I am the true king, I'm the new David, I'm the new Moses, I'm giving you a new Torah, and I'm reestablishing God's people. Yeah, yeah, he was a smart guy. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, uh, Jesus is also like, I mean, he's also referred to a lot as the true son of Abraham, right? Paul really goes into this a lot where he talks about how Jesus is a fulfillment of the covenant to Abraham. And again, that through Jesus is opening up God's promises to all peoples, not just to the Jewish people. Thankfully for us Gentiles, right? But it's not, it's not just for Abraham's physical descendants. It's for all of his spiritual descendants as well. So again, he's just going right through Israel's whole story and fulfilling it at every turn. It's It's really, really cool. So what we need to ask, the big question that we need to ask is how does Jesus' death and resurrection restore God's house? Because that's what's been broken. The, the creation, the nation, the house has been broken by sin. It's been disrupted. The covenant has been broken. There's, there's, there's not righteousness, right? People are not in right relationship, connection to God. And Jesus is going about restoring it. So the question that is for us is how? How is he restoring it? How can we understand what he's doing, right? I mean, that makes sense, right? Okay. And so... Uh, on, the, on the very last page, it's on page 6 of your handout, uh, I gave you all of John 1, 1 through 18. Um, because this, we're just going to spend some time in here. John is, John is the most theologically complex of the Gospels. It's written the latest. It shows the most amount of like theological reflection. And so it's... Is John the one that, if, if you're new to the Bible, that that's where you start? Uh people have said that the gospel of john is a pool in which a child can wade and an elephant can swim so you could you could spend your entire life in the gospel of john and be fine yeah but sure start the bible because you just don't start at the beginning no if, if if someone was if someone really wanted to know more about jesus i'd probably tell them to just start in Matthew and just read all four Gospels and just read them over and read them over and read them Matthew over. But John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those four, right? I mean, any order's fine. You know, a lot of people say to start in the Gospel of John because Jesus has very clear things like, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, you know that. He also says weird stuff like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be a part of my kingdom. And you're like, 
That's weird. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. So sometimes some things I read in John, and I'm like, oh, skip over that if you're new. We'll get to it later. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, Mark is another really good one. It's very simple and straight to the point. Um, Jesus is just going all over the place in that one, doing cool stuff. Um, but really just any of the Gospels. Uh, my personal favorite is the Gospel of John, but um, yeah, I think, I think you're not going to really go wrong if you're reading the Gospels. So... So the first thing that we need, there's, there's two twin confessions that we need to state clearly about Jesus, that any discussion of who Jesus is uh, cannot be without. And the first one is that Jesus is God. So in that first five verses there, it says, In the beginning, which is familiar language to us, the word already existed. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. And God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about this idea of wisdom, and this idea that when you looked around in creation, there was like this logic or this pattern to things. We usually call them like natural laws or physical laws or something like that, but there's like a rhyme and a reason to the created order. Uh, and, and the ancient peoples, the ancient Hebrews called that wisdom. The Greeks called it logos, which we translate as word. Okay, and so you see here that Jesus is being described as that, as that thing, that word, that logic, that pattern of creation. Um, if you have time and you're interested in this kind of thing, you can take Proverbs 8 and John 1 and kind of read them together. And you can actually see how a lot of this language is so similar. But this, this idea that the Hebrews were beginning to discern that there was this part of God that was like almost like another presence or another person. And they personified it as wisdom, and they made her female, right? And they talk about, and she, we read some of this uh, probably like two or three weeks ago now, right? But she would talk, and she would describe how she was working with God alongside God and like as a master craftsman, as God was making everything and all of that. Well, what, what we learn when we get to the New Testament is that that is actually the second person of the Trinity. That's that person that we call the Son or the, the, the Word of God. And that, it, that it's not just the first created thing like Proverbs says it was, but that it is actually an uncreated person of the Trinity. Is this divine Word, this Logos, this wisdom. And so last week we talked about the idea that the Torah, the thing that Moses brought down from the mountain, right, was a written record of this wisdom. Well, so really what we're claiming then is that that Moses received on Mount Sinai a written record of who Jesus is, like a, a sort of a, a written incarnation of Jesus, right? That that he is he is the way of God. Does that make sense? A little bit of sense? Okay, good. I know that's like really complex and heady, but we'll bring it back down. Well, okay. Didn't the, didn't the early Christians, the very first Christians, not call themselves Christians, but call themselves the way? The way, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was a very intentional, and Jesus even says this later, we're going to look at it later, where he says, I am the, the way. So there's, it's, it's really funny, because this is, this is what John is claiming. John's the one that's saying Jesus is the Torah, right? And that when Moses was getting the Torah, he was actually getting it from Jesus. Like, Jesus is the one dictating the Torah to Moses, and Moses is, like, chiseling it down, on the, and then, you know. 
Um, so there's later in John's gospel, Jesus is in a theological debate with some of the scribes and Pharisees, and they're quoting Torah to him. And so it's this sort of like comedic moment that the readers get to be a part of where they're like, well, Jesus, we need to tell you what the Torah says. And he's like, go ahead. <laughs> tell me what I said. You know, and it's like, it's really a humorous kind of a you know, moment that the gospel writer lets us peek in on. Of course, the Pharisees didn't get it. Um, but so, so, I mean, all of that to say, Jesus, Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. Whatever is true of the Father and of the Spirit is true of Jesus. They're all perfectly unified. They're perfectly in sync. What one of them does, they all do. As Jesus says later in the Gospel of John, right? He says, I only do what I see my Father doing. And when he gets accused of working on the Sabbath day, he's like, look, just, just God's working on the Sabbath day. I got to work on the Sabbath day like I do what my Father does. Sorry, guys. You know, and then that's when they start. They're like, don't you know that the Torah says don't work on it? You know, so. So Jesus is God. That's the first important, important, fully God, fully 100% God. When we see Jesus, we see the fullest, wholest picture of who God is. Everything else we know about God has to be run through the filter of who Jesus is because he shows us the fullest picture of God. The other thing that we confess is that Jesus is fully, completely human. Okay, so right there uh, down in verse 14, the next part that I have bolded down there, it says, So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Uh, the actual words there that I bolded uh, to human is actually the word became flesh. So the, uh, the big $20 <laughs> church word for this is incarnation, uh, which is not the instant breakfast drink. Carnas, uh, any Spanish speakers in here? Carnas, carnitas, it means meat, right? So car, it's from the Latin carnas, meat. And so this is the inmeatment of God. It's God taking on flesh, okay? Which I know is icky for some of us. But that's why I put the question in the discussion at the beginning. You know, scale of one to ten, how bad do you think Jesus' BO was? Like his body odor, right? I mean, that's something that probably weirds some of us out to think about. But that's because I think we're uncomfortable with how completely and totally human Jesus was, right? He lived in an ancient culture that didn't have deodorant or running water. So he probably stank just like everyone else around him. And the idea, I mean, the idea for a lot of us that Jesus would, I mean, that, that's, that's getting actually really humble, right? The idea that, we, that God would suggest, like, we don't like to be stinky, right? Whenever we start to smell ourselves a little bit, we get really self-conscious and go bathe or put on deodorant or perfume or cologne as quickly as possible. So the idea that God is that human can be offensive, right? Um, but it's... Being the same as them. Yeah, absolutely. It's, one, it's, it's, it's fully 100% entering into the culture, not holding anything back. And so again, there were some early Christians who said, well, Jesus only appeared to be human, right? He wasn't actually human. He just sort of like looked like us, but he wasn't fully human, right? And the early church rejected that as heresy just like we did with Marcion. He said, no, 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 no. Jesus is 100% human. Everything that is true about us is true about Jesus. Um, Otherwise, the whole concept of us being the image of God right. would be a falsehood. Absolutely. Yeah. So... You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of good debate about exactly what this reinterpretation of the law looked like. Um, 
it's, it's worth noting that if we take John's framework that Jesus is the Torah, that when Jesus is sitting in the Sermon on the Mount saying, well, you know, the Torah said, it's almost like he's saying, but what I really meant was, you know, well, when I said it the first time, it was this, but what I'm trying to, t- you know. And so there, there is a lot of discussion that it's not so much that he was calling us to like a new standard or a higher standard as much as he was just like reminding everyone of what the true purpose of laws is. Because we all, I mean, we all do this, right? When you see a law... You understand that there's probably a purpose behind it, right? There's there there the most laws, particularly um, like laws in our homes, like laws that parents make for children, right? They're not just like random laws to be mean, right? You're not like I just want to make their day harder, so I'm going to make you know, I'm going to say you can't use every third step on the staircase, like law. You know that's not that's not what it's about, right? It's not random. It's not right. It's it's there's a reasoning behind it. And so so with the Torah, right? It was never meant to just be this, like, random list of rules that God made up off the top of his head to, like, make us stick out from everyone else, right? They were meant to—he gave them to us. He said, this is the way to life. These will guard and guide you as you're walking towards life, and they will keep you from death. And so what we do is what we always do with laws is we turn them into those rules. We turn them into, uh, we, instead of treating them as a means to an end, right, these laws lead me to life, we treat them as the end themselves. These laws are good, and if I don't follow them, I'm bad, right? And the issue in the scriptures, as we've seen from Genesis 1 and 2, it's never been good versus bad. It's been alive versus dead, right? I mean, that, that's, the, that's the issue. Yeah, I mean, good and bad's in there, but that's, like, if, you, if, if it gets just reduced down to all that really matters is... Ha- Am I good or not? Am I better than them or not? Like, we're in a bad, we're in a bad place. You know, and we actually forget that the laws aren't meant to be ends in and out to themselves. They're meant to be guides that guide us to life. In fact, Paul even says this in Galatians. He says the law, the Torah, it's a, he calls it a tutor, right? He's like, it's a tutor that's meant to lead us to Christ. This was never given just so it would be the end in and of itself. It's always meant to guide us to a relationship with God. Even, even, the, even that dusty, old, oppressive Torah, as we sometimes like to think about it, right? Like, no, even that is meant to guide us to life. And so for me, going, you know, going back to your original question about that stuff he was doing in the Sermon on the Mount, to me it seems more likely that he was, again, just reminding us yet again that these laws were not just meant— I mean, when it said, thou shalt not murder, I don't think he was like, you know, just as long as you don't actually punch him in the face— and kill them, you can do whatever you want. Like, it doesn't matter if your heart's ugly inside. Like, I don't think that was the original point. I mean, this doesn't make any sense to me, right? That God in the Old Testament was like, yeah, as long as they're just all behaving, who cares what they think? Like, it, it seems like more that he was trying to reinterpret that and call us back to why the law was given in the first place. So, is that mm-hmm. good? Okay. Is it kind of like he's, he's reiterating that you are free, but if you do this, these yeah. Yeah, you you always have all, yeah 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 choose life choose don't life choose do life this because we should take our free will and do the right thing right yeah yeah I mean I, Jesus nor Paul nor anyone else in the scriptures is not afraid to be very blunt like don't do that but it's again it's never the law is never an end in and of itself it's never a rule for the sake of having rules it's always to guide us and it's again it's about the stability and this and the wholeness of the house. Right? It's never just about having a, having a rule because we didn't have enough of them. So, okay. Good? Mm-hmm. All right, so Jesus is God. Jesus is human. Um, this is a new stage in the covenant, right? The maker has become matter, right? Cre- creator is the creature. God has become the image of God, as, you know, as Chris pointed out. 
And if you remember what we talked about last week, the purpose of these covenants has always been to draw us into a relationship with God, and we keep settling for less. Right? We keep refusing. We keep settling back into who we think we can be instead of who God created us to be. And then God keeps reaching in and trying to call us forward. And so here, uh, there's this really cool thing that's done in John 1 where he, he contrasts Moses and Jesus. And if you think about Moses' journey, right? Moses starts on the ground and goes up and receives the Torah and the tabernacle and then comes back down. But here he's saying what Jesus did in the incarnation is that Jesus left heaven and came down to earth, and then the, the Torah actually becomes the tabernacle, which I want to come back to in a second. And then, of course, he goes back with the Father. And so, again, rather, because, because, you know, as we talked about last week, who made this journey? Just Moses, right? When God spoke to the people and offered them a one-on-one -on -one relationship, they refused it. They said, nope, can that never, ever happen again? Please, we're terrified. Right? So they, they kept settling back in fear to be less than what God wanted them to be. So here, God just takes care of that all together. So I'm going I'm to come all the way. I'm going to come all the way to you. I'm going to become one of you. I'm going to show you how this is done. I'm going to show you what I want. Okay? Um, in that part... Why are they so afraid? You know, I mean, something you got to remember is that they were slaves. They, had, they, had, they were born and raised in slavery. And... Yeah, I mean that's they were they were used to harsh gods, cruel gods, you know, and and I. I mean, if you know God, you they know. didn't know God. This was literally the first time they met God. All they saw were ten plagues, pillars of fire, parting the red. I mean, fairly terrifying, okay. right? Yeah, you know, I mean, they right. This this is the first time God has spoken to any of them, and it's this you know this firestorm descends on the top of the mountain, and then God's like, "Don't do this." Don't do that. Don't do this or that. I mean, like, it, you can imagine, right? It's, it's fairly terrifying. And what... Okay. Right, 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 right. You know, it's interesting that we, uh, we talk about the wandering in the wilderness for 40 years as a punishment because God takes them straight from Mount Sinai to the promised land. They send 12 spies in. The spies come back, and they're like, we can't do this. We can't, we'll be destroyed, right? And so God pun punishes them by sending them into the wilderness, some of the later rabbis have said, you know, what's really interesting about that is that it, it, you could look at this as a you could look at this as an act of love. Even this uh, this punishment is love on God's part because they were not fit to take the promised land. They were scared and they were cowering and they weren't trusting in God. So God sends them into the wilderness and they spend the next forty years. They don't eat, they don't drink, they don't do anything unless God gives them everything. And yeah, so they, they learn who God is, and they meet who God is, and they, they, get, they develop a, a national relationship with God. And so when you get 40 years later, you get back to the edge of the promised land, and like Joshua's like holding them back. I mean, they're like, you know, they're, it's a totally different people a, a generation later because they've had this time. And so there are lots of rabbis who say, yeah, yeah, it was a punishment, but like we can also look at it as, as an act of love, which, again, the, most, the best punishments, that's, that's what they are. They're punishments that are born out of love, not out of, not of anger or spite or anything like that. So, so that's why my dad told me when he put the belt in my chair. Exactly, right? This hurts me more than it hurts you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, shouldn't we switch then if that's how this works? I don't know. <laughs> so, okay. Um, good on all that? All right, so let's talk about the cross. Obviously, I did not draw this. <laughs> it's like they've been subsisting on wilderness drawings and they've gone into the land of milk and honey. <laughs> <laughs> that was Dale back in the back, yeah. <laughs> you 
can tell what everything is without me telling you, right? You it's, I know, right? Yeah, see, it's very, we're, we're sophisticated here. All right, we need to talk about what the cross is, okay? So the, the issue that's at stake in the Gospels is whose house is this? Is it Rome's house or is it God's house? Because Rome made uh, claims to the whole world. They said that the world revolved around Rome. It was all about, all about them. And so when, when Rome needed to prove that, particularly in places that they had conquered, they would use crucifixion. Uh, now I'm going to, like, so basically, I'm assuming you all know what a crucifixion is, but just to cover our bases, a crucifixion was a punishment that was specifically used for people who rebelled against Rome, okay? So a thief, a murderer, uh, uh, any, kind of, uh, any kind of other crime, they had pl Rome had plenty of ways to punish you or kill you, okay? Crucifixion was a particular punishment. It was only... Particular crime. Yeah, for a particular crime. It was only used... For rebellion against Rome, insurrection. Okay? And here's why. Here's why they did this. Or uh, maybe a better way to say it is like this The crucifixion is not for the people who are hanging on the crosses, it's for the people who are watching. Yeah. Set the example. Right. Okay? So here's what would happen Rome made a big parade out of it, they turned the whole thing into a spectacle. So they would mark, you know, here in particular, we know Jesus was crucified outside the city on a hill called Golgotha, right? And so people would be lined up, and then, they, like, Rome would march you, beating you and torturing you the whole way out of the, you know, through the city and out of the city. And people are just watching, and, you know, maybe they were watching in stunned silence. Maybe they were jeering. We don't know. Probably depending on their political leanings, right? But, but everyone is watching what happens and the clear and so they would do like they would put crowns like fake crowns on their heads right because like oh look look at the king everyone look at the king look how mighty he is look how powerful and they would be mocking and taunting and you know they dress and you see this they did this you know they dress them with robes and bow down oh you're so powerful king like oh don't hurt us you know they're beating him and all of this stuff and it was this whole it was this whole production it was a spectacle and it was meant not only to humiliate the person being crucified, but also to humiliate all of the people who sided with him, right? And so they would hang signs on the tops of the crosses that would announce who these people were that they were crucifying. And so Jesus is read, this is Jesus of Nazareth, what? King of the Jews. There's a clear, unambiguous message. Here's what happens if you think you are a king against Rome. Here's what happens if you think you have a different kingdom. Here's what happens if you think you have a better kingdom. Let's show you what happens. Because again, we're talking about gods, and we're really talking about whose way leads to life. And so Rome had a propaganda policy they called the Peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, right? And it was basically, when they would go to a new place, they'd say, hey, um, we're going to conquer you, and then you get, you, congratulations, you've won this great prize, it's the Peace of Rome. And so you get Roman armies, and you get Roman roads, and you get Roman security and stability, and all you have to do, pay taxes, worship our gods. We'll even let you keep worshiping your own silly little gods that obviously couldn't protect you from us, <laughs> right? As long as you worship our god too. And so Israel got to keep its temple, right, under Rome. They got to do sacrifices as long as they did a daily sacrifice to, to, for Caesar, right? And so anyone who was an upstart who tried to, to rise up against Rome, they crucify in this big parade, this big spectacle. Okay. 
making sure I got all of the things about. Yeah. Okay, so, so there's a way that the New Testament talks about the cross as the wrath of God. And again, it fits into the pattern that we've been seeing all the way through this whole, uh, this whole day tonight, is that if we are left to our own devices, it always ends up in emperors and crosses. Okay? There's a reason Lord of the Flies is still a very popular story today, because it's ringed so true. If you don't know Lord of the Flies, I'll spoil it for you. It's a great book. You should read it. But it's about all these boys that are shipwrecked on an island, and they end up you know, with imp- empires and torturing and killing other kids. And all. I mean, it, it's, and so the, the, the guy's writing the book to say, this is what happens. Like, even you take little, you know, uh, innocent little schoolboys and you leave them alone and without any kind of influence or government and they devolve into these, you know, into this. This, this, this is that second tree, right? When we choose our own way, when we choose to live in our world on our terms, it always ends up looking like this. And so the cross is what happens when God lets us say, okay, have it, have it your way. You don't want to follow me? You don't want to do things my way? You don't. Go ahead. Now what's really interesting about Jesus on the cross is that Jesus is God become human. Right? He's fully God. He's fully human. And Jesus follows God's way. Right? He, he's the first person who ever lives in God's world on God's terms But because the world is so overrun by sin, Jesus' righteousness, his consistent, never-failing right relationship with God, his consistently, strongly maintained covenant, gets him crucified. So God has said, right, I mean, we read it it last week even in the covenant with Noah. I am putting before you life or death. Choose my way so that you will have life. That's the covenant God makes, right? But Jesus follows God's way. And it leads to death. Well, Paul Harvey said, page two, the <laughs> resurrection. Sure, right, 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 right. But, I mean, think about how this looked to everyone. Think about how it looked to Rome. Think about how it looked to his disciples. Is there any wonder that they all fled in fear? Right? Think about how it looked to all of those people who were like, after this never-ending string of false messiahs, is this guy actually the guy? No, I guess not. Because he's hanging up there on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? I did it. I did it. I did it your way. Where, where is, this, is this it? Now, there's a lot more to unpack in that, right? Yes, it's, it's Psalms 91, where it talks about the secret place of the Most High. What's that have to do with the resurrection? Is that? I don't know off the top of my head. I have to oh, look at it. Okay. Um, I mean, this, this is the question that the cross asks. Was Rome right? Is Yahweh, in fact, too small? Is he not actually the God that he claims to be? Because his way didn't bring life. His way brought death, right? So is, is, it, is it that Yahweh is a false god? Or is it that our world is just so broken and infected with sin that there's no hope? That's, that's what Good Friday begs us to ask. And... We do well not to rush past it to get to the good stuff again, right? We do well to sit in that for a minute because I think that's where a lot of people live. A lot of people live in that sort of Good Friday world where they're just not sure that there actually is a happy ending. They don't see any other way other than the way of the world that leads to a cross, to death, to pain and oppression and suffering and conquest. 
Now, I want to read for you Colossians 2, 13, and 15 because uh, it's just awesome. Paul says, you were dead because of your sins and your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record of uh, he, or he canceled the record of the charges against us and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. So he's talking about Jesus' crucifixion, right? Then, in verse 15, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his death on the cross. So Paul is taking us back to this because that's exactly what Rome seeks to do with the cross. They, they seek to shame publicly anyone who would oppose their rule and paul says in colossians no 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 you see what happens is that on the cross jesus reveals the the sinful rebellious spirit of humanity for all of the ugly and frankly silliness that it is this looks like jesus is the one who's losing the day but in fact it's the powers of sin and darkness and evil that are losing the day because this is as good as they've got this is, their biggest, this is their biggest gun. The best thing that they can do to threaten and control and intimidate all of the people in the world to follow them is fear, the threat of death. Death is their biggest weapon. Once they've, once they've done this, they're, they're out. They got nothing else. And the good news of Easter Sunday morning is that God affirms in the resurrection of Jesus that even death will not stop him. That God will have life and God will give life to those who follow his ways and if that means he has to raise you from the dead to be faithful to his covenant, done. Next question. Bible scholar N.T. Wright says that on the cross Jesus allows the powers of darkness to exhaust themselves upon him. He takes the very worst that they have and swallows it and they're left spent and empty and laughable because they did their little they did their little dance and they did a little parade and God overcame it so we call uh, we call what Jesus did on the cross Christ the victor you'll often hear the Latin phrase Christus victor okay this is a bullet point five how Jesus frees us from the powers there's three ways that this sort of Christ the victor, Christ the winner, Christ the champion, three, three ways that this helps us to overcome sin. And to, rest, again, what we mean by overcome sin is how it restores our relationship with God, how it, how it justifies us and makes us righteous, to use the biblical language. First of all uh, is a thing called moral influence, and that means that Jesus shows us what a righteous person could look like. He shows us what humanity could be. Remember, when we say that Jesus was fully human, that means that everything that's true about Jesus is true about us. He's fully human. Anything that Jesus did, that means we can do. Any, anything Jesus was, that means we can be. God created us to, to live without sin. And so that's why when we sin, we don't say, well, I'm only human. Because sin is a deviation from what it means to be human. It's not a definition of what it means to be human. That's hard for us to hear. But that, if you say that's not true, then you're saying Jesus was not fully human. And the scriptures resoundingly affirm that. That sin is a brokenness, it's an illness, it's a sickness, it's a deviation, it's not the norm. 
And so the first thing Jesus does is show us what we could be, what we can be. So in John 14, he's talking to his disciples. And he says to them, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas goes, no, we don't. <laughs> he's like, we have no idea where you're going. What are you talking about? What do you say? What do you mean we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we will all be satisfied. And Jesus said, have I been with you all this time? You still don't know who I am. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So there again, we get that fully human, fully God. He is he's the way and he's also full, the full revelation of God. All right, now the second way that Jesus frees us is through substitution. Okay, now we just had a little bit of an emotional reaction when I said that Jesus shows us who we can be. We all also know that that's not who we are. We all are not that, right? So Jesus takes the penalty for us. He dies in our place. He is the second Adam. He's the, he's, he is us. So through Jesus' righteousness, God extends forgiveness. He justifies us. Our place in the house is restored. So the parable of the prodigal son, the father and the prodigal's relationship is a great illustration of this. Prodigal returns, the father welcomes him. There's forgiveness, the house is restored. That's it. Like That's what it looks like because Jesus is our substitute. So 1 John 2 says, He himself, Jesus, is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for all the sins of the world. So not only does Jesus show us who we could be, but he dies for us because that's what we deserve, the wages of sin. That's what sin always ends up here, right? And Jesus takes that for us so that we don't have to experience that, so that we can experience life instead of death. But then beyond even that, Jesus offers us participation. Jesus invites us to follow God's way. We become righteous, right? We have a restored relationship with God, and we can choose to follow God. Uh, in the house metaphor... We become sons and daughters of God. We're adopted. Our place in the house is restored. We are in God's house. We're full image bearers, and we can choose to live in God's world on God's terms. Now, 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter 4 says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through, as if something strange is happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering. You join Christ in his suffering. Your decision to be righteous causes you to suffer the way Jesus suffers. Therefore, you will have that wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. As long as we still live in a broken world and we choose to follow God, we're going to share the same fate as Jesus did, right? Because our, our world is broken. So what Paul says in Philippians is I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection of the dead. Paul. I think he got what he wanted. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Paul was beheaded, yeah, by Nero. Yeah. So, for preaching the gospel in Rome. So Paul says, I want to know, I want to participate in what God is doing. I want to follow God's way and that means that one way or another, even, even, if, even if the way I follow God ends up taking me to the same place it did Jesus, I experience the same reward that Jesus did, which is resurrection from the dead. Because God is always faithful to his covenants, even if it requires resurrection. Right? That's what Paul says. So we can participate. 
Not only is he a substitute for us, not only does he show us how to do it, but we can actually choose to join in what he's doing. We can actually be full partners. This is how, this is how Jesus triumphs over the powers. So, um, really cool, really, oh yeah, we're good on that. Okay, really cool, really fast. Uh, back in John 1. John 1 starts with, in the beginning, which is Genesis language. And it's on purpose, right? And then that word that I highlighted down there in verse 14 where it says he made his home among us, it actually, uh, the Greek there is actually, uh, he, he set up his tent among us. And the word tent that's used there is the same word that's used to describe the tabernacle in the Old Testament. So it's Jesus, the word became flesh and made his tabernacle among us. And if you read through the Gospel of John, Jesus repeatedly refers to his body, his flesh, as the true temple. So there's a point early in the gospel when he predicts the fall of the temple. And he says, you tear this temple down and I'll raise again in three days. And they're like, how are you going to, I mean, it, just, it took him years to build this. And, and then there, we get a little editorial comment, right? But he wasn't talking about that temple. He's talking about the temple of his body. Uh, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. They had their own temple on their own mountain. And then the Jewish people had their temple on their mountain. And she's like, which temple is the right temple, Messiah guy? You know, is it our temple or your temple? And he's like, well, it's neither temple, because now the true temple is standing right in front of her, right? And so constantly through that, and remember, when we're talking about temple, we're talking about God's house, the representation of creation. And so we get in the beginning creation language, and we get this tabernacle creation language. And then as you move through the Gospel of John, uh, there are not nearly as many miracles as are in the rest of the Gospels. Like, there's only seven of them, and each of them is called a sign. And so it's like it's clear like he turns water into wine and then the, and then the writer of the gospel goes this is the first sign and you're like what the first first sign to what and then in the next one he's like this was the second sign and you're like oh we're counting these things okay so you start counting them and by the time you get to the end you realize there were seven which is again interesting because there were seven days of creation and so then you get to the last big miracle in the gospel which is Jesus's resurrection from the dead and that's number eight which doesn't fit. Except that it happens on the first day of the week, on, on a Sunday, right? And so in the very end of, I have this here, it says, uh, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. She found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. And then you skip down a little ways. Mary was standing alone outside the tomb crying. And she turned to leave, and she saw someone standing there. And it was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. What are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. She said, sir, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. Mary, Jesus said, and then she turned to him and she cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. So John's gospel starts out with in the beginning. And then we have this story of this, uh, the incarnation of the creative wisdom and word of God that becomes human and walks among us in this broken world and experiences the full consequences of death and sin, and all of that. And then the story ends on the first day of the week, on the eighth day of the week, with a man and a woman standing in a garden, and she thinks he's a gardener. And we start to realize that this is a new creation. That God is not just putting things back and patching holes and shoring things up, but he's doing something completely new. He's restoring the whole World, the whole of creation. So, new king, new covenant, new world. We're going back through all of it. And so, for the rest of this class, we're going to be talking about what it means 
that Jesus' resurrection from the dead was the first day of a new creation. And of course, we look around and things are obviously not all new right now. And that's going to play into our conversation. But um, that's all to come. So I want to take about three or four minutes for questions, and then I want to close with communion, because if we're talking about Jesus, that's the best way to close. So, any final questions, comments, thoughts? This was a whole lot of stuff. What was the, the, the recitation that you gave about um, I am the light and the darkness will never overcome? That's, for, that's that John 1, 1 through, uh, 1 through well, no, 5. There was an Old Testament version of that, too. That's kind of oh, Proverbs 8. Yeah. Well, yeah. once again, that's almost like yeah. prophecy and confirmation right. between right. the two books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah the wisdom language and the, the Logos word language are, are the same. Very much so. Okay? Good. Uh, so next, yeah, next week we're talking about the Holy Spirit, which is the third person of the Trinity. And uh, really we're going to be talking then about how we participate in this and what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. But uh, I have this communion set up. We're just going to do intention because I didn't want to do tiny glasses for everyone. So you've got the, the little styrofoamy wafers here and then the cups. So you can just come up and take one and dip it. Uh, they are gluten-free if anyone has that uh, food intolerance in here. But um, the reason that we do this is because this is a reminder that Jesus not only shows us the way to God, but also is a substitute. He died in our place so that we could experience life and, and, and a right relationship with God, even though we broke the covenant. It's that affirmation of the covenant that he made to Noah that, that he, would, he would rescue us even from ourselves. And then it's finally an invitation to participate, to live in the way of God with Jesus and to follow him into the life that he promises. So uh, I'm going to do the sort of the um, consecration and then I'll let you come up as you feel comfortable. You can all come up once or, you know, if you need to take a few moments uh, of prayer, you can do that as well. But uh, on the night that he was betrayed, uh, Jesus took bread as they were eating and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples. and He said, take this and eat it. This is my body which is broken for you. Then later in the meal, he took the cup. He said, this wine, this is actually cran grape juice because it was all I could find, but I think it'll still work, okay? Um, this cran grape juice is my blood, which was poured out for you for the forgiveness of sin. Take it and drink all of it. Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful for this opportunity that we have to talk about how you rescued us. You have heard tonight in our agony and our wondering about your children and how they, can, how they can so easily fall from you. We're reminded of our own frailties and faults. Thank you for not being content to leave us in our failures, but always calling us to be who you created us to be, who you know that we can be. Thank you for reminding us that what it means to be human is that we bear your image in the world and that our sins are not what define us. They're a bent away from the norm. They're a deviation. They're a brokenness. They're a sickness. And you are the great physician. You are the master craftsman who heals and restores and invites us into life. And so tonight we approach your table. We approach this bread and this cup and we ask that you would make for them, make us, make them for us the body and the blood of your son. That when we eat them, we are reminded of what we could be we are thankful for the substitution that you are on our part, and we are inspired and encouraged to join you in the life that is truly life. 
we offer our thanks as we approach your table in the name of your Son. I wanted to close by reading John, uh, 1 John 4, 16 through 18. It's not in your papers, but um, you can write it down if you want, or just remember uh, 1 John 4, 16 through 18. It says, God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. As we live in God, our love grows more perfect, so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment, and this shows we have not fully experienced his perfect love. And we love each other because he first loved us. Would you go tonight participating fully in the life of Christ as you have been welcomed into it by his death and resurrection? <clears throat>